0: Here, Saints, you're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read-through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. Large Catechism of Dr. Martin Luther, the Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, and Eighth Commandments. The Fifth Commandment, You Shall Not Murder. We have now finished teaching about both the spiritual and the temporal government, that is, the divine and the parental authority and obedience. But now we go forth from our house among our neighbors to learn how we should live with one another, everyone himself toward his neighbor. Therefore, God and government are not included in this commandment, nor is the power to kill taken away which God and government have. To punish evil doers, God has delegated his authority to the government, not parents. In earlier times, as we read in Moses, parents were required to bring their own children to judgment and even to sentence them to death. Therefore, what is forbidden in this commandment is forbidden to the individual in his relationship with anyone else but not to the government. Now, this commandment is easy enough and has often been presented, because we hear it each year in the Gospel of St. Matthew chapter 5, where Christ himself explains and sums it up. He says that we must not kill, neither with hand, heart, mouth, signs, gestures, help, nor counsel. Therefore, this commandment forbids everyone to be angry, except those, as we said, who are in the place of God that is, parents and the government. For it is proper for God and for everyone who is in a divine estate to be angry, to rebuke, and to punish because of those very persons who transgress this and other commandments. The cause and need of this commandment is that God well knows that the world is evil, and that this life has much unhappiness. Therefore he has set up this and the other commandments between the good people and the evil. Now just as there are many attacks on all commandments. So the same happens also with this commandment. We must live among many people who do us harm, and we have a reason to be hostile to them. For example, when your neighbor sees that you have a better house and home, a larger family and more fertile fields, greater possessions and fortune from God than he does, he gets in a bad mood, envies you, and speaks no good of you. So by the devil's encouragement you will get many enemies who cannot bear to see you have any good, either bodily or spiritual. When we see such people, our hearts also would like to rage and bleed and take vengeance. Then there arise cursing and blows. From them misery and murder finally come. In this commandment God, like a kind father, steps in ahead of us, intervenes, and wishes to have the quarrel settled, so that no misfortune comes from it, and no one destroys another person. And briefly he would in this way protect, set free, and keep in peace everyone against the crime and violence of everyone else. He would have this commandment placed as a wall, fortress, and refuge around our neighbor, so that we do not hurt or harm him in his body. The commandment has this goal, that no one would offend his neighbor because of any evil deed, even though he has fully deserved it. For where murder is forbidden, all cause from which murder may spring is also forbidden. For many people, although they do not kill, curse and utter a wish that would stop a person from running far if it were to strike him on the neck. Now this urge dwells in everyone by nature. It is common practice that no one is willing to suffer at the hands of another person. Therefore God wants to remove the root and source by which the heart is embittered against our neighbor. He wants to make us used to keeping this commandment ever in view, always to contemplate ourselves in it as in a mirror to regard the will of God, and to turn over to him the wrong that we suffer with hearty confidence, and by calling on his name. In this way, we shall let our enemies rage and be angry, doing what they can. We learn to calm our wrath and to have a patient Gentile heart, especially toward those who give us cause to be angry, namely our enemies. Therefore, the entire sum of what it means not to murder is to be impressed most clearly upon the simple-minded, In the first place, we must harm no one, either with our hand or by deed. We must not use our tongue to instigate or counsel harm. We must neither use nor agree to use any means or methods by which another person may be injured. Finally, the heart must not be ill-disposed toward anyone or wish another person ill in anger and hatred. Then body and soul may be innocent toward everyone, but especially toward those who wish you evil or inflict such things upon you. For to do evil to someone who wishes you good and does you good is not human, but devilish. Second, a person who does evil to his neighbor is not the only one guilty under this commandment. It also applies to any one who can do his neighbor good, prevent or resist evil, defend and save his neighbor so that no bodily harm or hurt happen to him, yet does not do this. If therefore you send away someone who is naked when you could clothe him, you have caused him to freeze to death. If you see someone suffer hunger and do not give him food, you have caused him to starve. So also if you see anyone innocently sentenced to death or in similar distress and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It will not work for you to make the excuse that you did not provide any help, counsel, or aid to harm him, for you have withheld your love from him and deprived him of the benefit by which his life would have been saved. God also rightly calls all people murderers who do not provide counsel and help in distress and danger of body and life. He will pass a most terrible sentence upon them in the last day, as Christ himself has announced, that he will say, I was hungry and you gave me no food, I was thirsty and you gave me no drink, I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. This means you would have allowed me and mine to die of hunger, thirst, and cold. You would have allowed the wild beasts to tear us to pieces, or left us to rot in prison or perish in distress. What else is that but to rebuke them as murderers and bloodhounds? For although you have not actually done all this to someone, you have still, so far as you were concerned, let him wither and perish in misfortune. It is just as if I saw someone navigating and laboring in deep water, or one fallen into fire and could extend to him the hand and pull him out and save him and yet refuse to do it how would i looked even in the eyes of the world just like a murderer and a criminal therefore it is god's ultimate purpose that we let harm come to no one but show him all good and love as we have said this commandment is especially directed toward those who are our enemies for to do good to our friend is an ordinary heathen virtue as christ says in matthew 5 Here again we have God's word by which he would encourage and teach us to do true, noble, and grand works such as gentleness, patience, and in short, love and kindness to our enemies. He would ever remind us to reflect upon the first commandment. He is our God, which means that he will help assist and protect us in order that he may quench the desire of revenge in us. We ought to practice and teach this. Then we would have our hands full by doing good works but this would not be preaching for monks. It would greatly undermine from the religious calling and interfere with the sanctity of Carthusians. It would even be regarded as forbidding good works and clearing the convents. For the ordinary state of Christians would be considered just as worthy and even worthier than monastic life. Everyone would see how the Carthusians mock and delude the word with a false hypocritical show of holiness because they have cast this and other commandments to the winds. They have considered them unnecessary, as though they were not commandments, but mere evangelical counsels. At the same time, they have shamelessly proclaimed and boasted about their hypocritical calling and works as the most perfect life. They do this so that they might lead a pleasant, easy life, without the cross and without patience. For this reason also, they have created the cloisters, so that they might not be obliged to suffer any wrong from any anyone or do that person any good. But know now that the works of this commandment are the true, holy, and godly works. God rejoices in them with all the angels. In comparison with these works, all human holiness is just stench and filth. And besides, human holiness deserves nothing but wrath and damnation. The Seventh Commandment you shall not steal. After the commandment about you personally and your spouse, next comes the commandment about temporal property. God wants property protected. He has commanded that no one shall take away from or diminish his neighbor's possessions. For to steal is nothing else than to get possession of another's property wrongfully. Briefly, this includes all kinds of advantage in all sorts of trade to the disadvantage of our neighbor. Now this is indeed quite a widespread and common vice. It is so little considered and noticed that it surpasses all measure. So if all thieves who did not want to be known as thieves were to be hanged on the gallows, the world would soon be devastated. There would be a lack of both executioners and gallows. For as we have just said, to steal means not only emptying our neighbor's money box and pockets, it also means grasping property in the market, in all stores booths, wine and beer cellars, workshops, and in short, wherever there is trading or taking and giving of money for merchandise or labor. Let me explain this somewhat plainly for the common people that it may be seen how godly we are. For example, consider a manservant or maidservant who does not serve faithfully in the house, does damage or allows damage to be done when it could be prevented. He ruins and neglects the goods entrusted to him, By laziness, idleness, or hate, to the spite and sorrow of master and mistress. In whatever way this can be done purposefully—I'm not talking about what happens by mistake and against one's will—you can in a year steal thirty or forty florins. If another servant had taken that much money secretly or carried it away, he would be hanged with the rope. But here you, while conscious of such a great theft, may even express defiance and become rude and no one dares call you a thief. I say the same also about mechanics, workmen, and day-laborers. They all follow their evil thoughts and never know enough ways to overcharge people while they are lazy and unfaithful in their work. All these are far worse than burglars whom we can guard against with locks and bolts and, if caught, can be treated in such a way that they will not commit the crime again. But against unfaithful workers no one can guard." No one even dares to give them an angry look or accuse them of theft. One would rather lose ten times as much money from his purse. For here are my neighbors, good friends, my own servants, from whom I expect every faithful and diligent service, yet they cheat me most of all. Furthermore, in the market and in common trade also, this practice is in full swing and forced to the greatest extent. There one openly cheats another with bad merchandise false measures, weights, and coins, and by nimbleness and strange finances. Or he takes advantage of him with clever tricks. Likewise, one overcharges another in a trade and greedily drives a hard bargain, skins, and distresses him. Who can repeat or think of all these acts? To sum up, this is the most common trade and the largest union on earth. If we consider the world through all conditions of life, it is nothing but a vast, wide sales booth full of great thieves. Therefore, some are so-called swivel-chair robbers, land and highway robbers, not pit clocks and burglars. For they snatch away easy money, but they sit on a chair at home and are styled great noblemen and honorable pious citizens. They rob and steal in a way assumed to be good. Yes, here we might be silent about the petty individual thieves if we were to attack the great powerful arch-thieves whom lords and princes keep company. These thieves daily plunder not only a city or two, but all of Germany. Indeed, where should we place the head and supreme protector of all thieves, the holy chair at Rome with all its train of attendants, which is grabbed by theft and wealth of all the world and holds it to this day? This is, in short, the way of the world. Whoever can steal and rob openly goes free and secure, unmolested by any anyone, and even demands that he be honored. Meanwhile, the little burglars who have once trespassed must bear the shame and punishment to make the former thieves appear godly and honorable. But let such open thieves know that in God's sight they are the greatest thieves. He will punish them as they are worthy and deserve. Now, since this commandment is so far-reaching, just as indicated, it is necessary to teach it well and to explain it to the common people. Do not let them go on in their greed and security, but always place before their eyes God's wrath and instill the same. For we must preach this not to Christians, but to chiefly hoods and scoundrels. It would be more fitting for judges, jailers, or Master Hans, the executioner, to preach to them. Therefore, let everyone know his duty, at the risk of God's displeasure. He must do no harm to his neighbor, nor deprive him of profit, nor commit any act of unfaithfulness or hatred in any bargain or trade. But he must also faithfully preserve his property for him, secure and promote his advantage. This is especially true when one accepts money, wages, and one's livelihood for such service. Now, the person who greedily despises this commandment may indeed pass by and escape the hangman, but he shall not escape God's wrath and punishment. When he has long practiced his defiance and arrogance, he shall still remain a tramp and beggar. In addition, he will have all plagues and misfortune. Now you are going your own way, though you ought to preserve the property of your master and mistress. For your service you fill your throat and stomach, take your wages like a thief, and have people treat you like a nobleman. For there are many that are even rude toward their masters and mistresses and are unwilling to do them a favor of service by which to protect them from loss. But consider what you will gain. When you have come into your own property and are set up in your home, to which God will help with all misfortunes, your earlier misdeeds will bob up again and come home to you. You will find that where you have cheated or done injury at the value of one might, You will have to pay 30 again. This will also be the result for craftsmen and day laborers. We are now obliged to hear and suffer such intolerable hatred from them as though they were noblemen in another's possessions and everyone is obliged to give them what they demand. Just let them continue making their demands as long as they can. God will not forget his commandment. He will reward them just as they have served. He will hang them not upon a green gallows but upon a dry one. So all their life they shall neither prosper nor gather anything. Indeed, if there were a well-ordered government in the land, such greediness might soon be checked and prevented. That was the custom in ancient times among the Romans. There such characters were promptly seized by the head in a way that caused others to take warning. No more shall all the rest prosper who change the open free market into a flesh-pit of extortion and a den of robbery where the poor are daily overcharged, and where new burdens and high prices are imposed. Everyone there uses the market according to his whim. He is even defiant and brags as though it were his fair privilege and right to sell his goods for as high a price as he pleases, and no one had a right to say a word against it. We will indeed look on and let these people skin, pinch, and hoard, but we will trust in God who will do the following. After you have been skinned and scraping for a long time, he will pronounce such a blessing on your gains, that your gains in the silo, your beer in the cellar, and your cattle in the stalls shall perish. Yes, where you have cheated and overcharged anyone for even a florin, your entire pile of wealth shall be consumed with rust, so that you shall never enjoy it. Indeed, we see and experience this being fulfilled daily before our eyes. No stolen or dishonestly acquired possession thrives. How many there are who rake and scrape day and night, and yet grow not a farthing richer? Though they gather much, they must suffer so many plagues and misfortunes that they cannot enjoy it with cheerfulness, nor leave it to their children. But since no one cares, and we go on as though it did not concern us, God must visit us in a different way and teach us manners by imposing one taxation after another or he must billet a troop of soldiers upon us. In one hour they empty our money-boxes and purses, and do not quit as long as we have a farthing left. In addition, by way of thanks, they burn and devastate house and home, and they outrage and kill wife and children. In short, if you steal much, you can expect that much will be stolen from you. He who robs and gets by violence and wrong will submit to one who shall act the same way toward him, for God is master of this art. Since everyone robs and steals from one another, God punishes one theft by means of another. Or else, where will we find enough gallows and ropes? Now whoever is willing to be instructed, let him know that this is God's commandment. It must not be treated as a joke. For although you despise, defraud, steal, and rob us, we will indeed manage to endure your arrogance, suffer, and according to the Lord's prayer, forgive and show pity. For we know that the godly shall nevertheless have enough, but you injure yourself more than another. Beware of this. The poor man will come to you. There are so many now. He must buy things with the penny of his daily wages and live upon it. When you are harsh to him, as though everyone lived by your favor, and you skin and scrape him to the bone, and when you turn him away with pride and arrogance, to whom you ought to give things without payment, he will go away wretched and sorrowful. Since he can complain to no one else, he will cry and call to heaven. Then beware, I say again, as of the devil himself, for such groaning and calling will be no joke. It will have a weight that will prove too heavy for you and all the world, for it will reach him who takes care of the poor, sorrowful hearts. You will not allow them to go unavenged. But if you despise this and become defiant, see the one you have brought upon you. If you succeed and prosper, before all the world you may call God and me a liar. We have exhorted, warned, and protested enough. He who will not listen to me or believe this commandment may go on until he learns by experience. Yet it must be impressed upon the young, so that they may be careful not to follow the old lawless crowd, but keep their eyes fixed upon God's commandment, lest his wrath and punishment come upon them too. It is necessary for us to do no more than to teach and to warn with God's word, but to check such open greediness there is need for the princes and government. They themselves should take note and have the courage to establish and maintain order in all kinds of trade and commerce. They must do this, lest the poor be burdened and oppressed, and the leaders themselves be burdened with other people's sins. This is enough of an explanation of what stealing is. Let the commandment not be understood too narrowly, but let it apply to everything that has to do with our neighbors. Briefly, in summary, as in the former commandments, this is what is forbidden, to do our neighbor any injury or wrong in any conceivable manner by impeding, hindering, and withholding his possessions and property, or even to consent or allow such injury. Instead, we should interfere and prevent it. It is commanded that we advance and improve his possessions. When they suffer lack, we should help, share, and lend, both to friends and foes. Whoever now seeks and desires good works will find here more than enough that are hardly acceptable and pleasing to God. In addition, they are favored and crowned with excellent blessings. So we are to be richly compensated for all that we do to our neighbor's good and from friendship. King Solomon also teaches us in Proverbs 19. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Here then you have a rich Lord. He is certainly enough for you. He will not allow you to come up short in anything or to any lack. So you can, with a joyful conscience, enjoy a hundred times more than you could scrape together with unfaithfulness and wrong. Now whoever does not desire this blessing will find enough wrath and misfortune. The Eighth Commandment You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Over and above our own body, spouse, and temporal possessions, we still have another treasure, honor, and good reputation. We cannot do without these. For it is intolerable to live among people in open shame and general contempt. Therefore, God does not want the reputation, good name, and upright character of our neighbor to be taken away or diminished, just as with his money and possessions. He wants everyone to stand in his integrity before wife, children, servants, and neighbors. In the first place, we must consider the plainest meaning of this commandment, according to the words, You shall not bear false witness. This applies to the public courts of justice, where a poor innocent man is accused and oppressed by false witnesses in order to be punished in his body, property, or honor. Now this commandment appears as though it were of little concern to us at present, but with the Jewish people it was quite common and in an ordinary manner. For the people were organized under an excellent and regular government. Where there is still such a government, instances of this sin will not be lacking. The cause of it is that where judges, mayors, princes, or others in authority sit in judgment, things never fail to go according to the way of the world. In other words, people do not like to offend anyone. They flatter and speak to gain favor, money, prospects, or friendship. As a result, a poor man and his cause must be oppressed, denounced as wrong, and suffer punishment. It is a common disaster in the world that in courts of justice, Godly men seldom preside. To be a judge requires above all things a godly man, and not only a godly man, but also a wise, modest, indeed a brave and bold man. Likewise, to be a witness requires a fearless and especially godly man. For a person who is to judge all matters rightly and carry them through with his decision will often defend good friends, relatives, neighbors, and the rich and powerful who may greatly serve or injure him. Therefore he must be quite blind, have his eyes and ears closed, neither see nor hear but go straight forward in everything that comes before him and decide accordingly. Therefore this commandment is given in the first place so that every one shall help his neighbor to secure his rights, and not allow them to be hindered or twisted. But every one shall promote and strictly maintain these rights, no matter whether he is a judge or a witness and let it apply to whatsoever it will. A particular goal is set up here for our jurists that they be careful to deal truly and uprightly with every case, allowing right to remain right. On the other hand, they must not pervert anything by their tricks and technical points, turning black into white and making wrong out to be right. They must not gloss over a matter or keep silent about it, regardless of a person's money, possession, honor, or power. This is one part, in the plainest sense of the commandment, about all that takes place in court. Next, this commandment extends very much further if we are to apply it to spiritual jurisdiction or administration. Here it is a common occurrence that everyone bears false witness against his neighbor. For wherever there are godly preachers and Christians, they must bear the sentence before the world that calls them heretics, apostates, and indeed instigators and desperately wicked unbelievers. Besides, God's word must suffer in the most shameful and hateful manner, being persecuted, blasphemed, contradicted, perverted, and falsely quoted and interpreted. But let this go, for this is the way of the blind world, which condemns and persecutes the truth and God's children, and yet considers it no sin. In the third place, which concerns us all, this commandment forbids all sins of the tongue, by which we may injure or confront our neighbor. To bear false witness is nothing else than a work of the tongue. Now God prohibits whatever is done with the tongue against a fellow man. This applies to false preachers with their doctrine and blasphemy, false judges and witnesses with their verdict, or outside the court by lying and speaking evil. Here belongs particularly the detestable, shameful vice of speaking behind a person's back and slandering, to which the devil spurns us on, and of which much could be said for it is a common evil plague that everyone prefers hearing evil more than hearing good about his neighbor. We ourselves are so bad that we cannot allow anyone to say anything bad about us. Everyone would much prefer that all the world should speak of him in glowing terms, yet we cannot bear that the best is spoken about others. To avoid this vice, we should note that no one is allowed publicly to judge and reprove his neighbor, even though he may see him sin unless he has a command to judge and reprove him. There is a great difference between these two things, judging sin and knowing about sin. You may indeed know about it, but you are not to judge it. I can indeed see and hear that my neighbor sins, but I have no command to report it to others. Now, if I rush in judging and passing sentence, I fall into a sin that is greater than his. But if you know about it, do nothing other than turn your ears into a grave and cover it, until you are appointed to be judge and to punish by virtue of your office. People are called slanderers who are not content with knowing a thing, but go on to assume jurisdiction. When they know about a slight offense committed by another person, they carry it into every corner. They are delighted and tickled that they can stir up another's displeasure, just as swine delight to roll themselves in the dirt and root in it with the snout. This is nothing other than meddling with God's judgment and office and pronouncing sentence and punishment with the most severe verdict. For no judge can punish to a higher degree, nor go further than to say that a person is a thief, a murderer, a traitor, and so on. Therefore, whoever presumes to say the same things about his neighbor goes just as far as the emperor in all governments. For although you do not wield the sword, you use your poisonous tongue to shame and hurt your neighbor. God therefore would have such behavior banned, that any one should speak evil of another person, even though that person is guilty, and the latter knows it well, much less if any one does not know it and has the story only from hearsay. But you say, shall I not say something if it is the truth? Answer. Why do you not make your accusation to regular judges? Ah, I cannot prove it publicly, and so I might be silenced and turned away in a harsh manner. Ah. Indeed, do you smell the roast? If you do not trust yourself to stand before the proper authorities and to answer well, then hold your tongue. But if you know about it, know about it for yourself and not for another. For if you tell the matter to others, although it is true, you will look like a liar, because you cannot prove it. Besides, you are acting like a rascal. We should never deprive anyone of his honor or good name unless it is first taken away from him publicly. False witness, then, is everything that cannot be properly proved. No one shall make public or declare for truth what is not obvious by sufficient evidence. In short, whatever is secret should be allowed to remain secret, or, at any rate, should be secretly rebuked, as we shall hear. Therefore, if you meet an idle tongue that betrays and slanders someone, contradict such a person promptly to his face, so that he may blush. Then... Many a person will hold his tongue, who otherwise would bring some poor man into bad repute, from which he would not easily free himself. For honor and a good name are easily taken away, but not easily restored. So you see that it is directly forbidden to speak any evil of our neighbor. However, the civil government, preachers, father, and mother are not forbidden to speak out. This is based on the understanding that this commandment does not allow evil to go unpunished, Now, in the fifth commandment, no one is to be injured in body, and yet Master Hans, the executioner, is excluded from this rule. By virtue of his office, he does his neighbor no good, but only evil and harm. Nevertheless, he does not sin against God's commandment. God has instituted that office on his own account. God has reserved punishment for his own good pleasure, as he threatens in the first commandment. In the same way, although no one has a personal right to judge and condemn anyone, yet if any of those who serve in offices of judgment fail to judge, they sin just as surely as a person who would act on his own accord without any such office. For in matters of justice necessity requires one to speak of the evil, to prefer charges, to investigate, and to testify. This is no different from the case of a doctor who is sometimes compelled to examine and handle the private parts of the patient whom he is to cure. In the same way, governments, fathers, and mother, brother and sister, and other good friends are under obligation to one another to rebuke evil wherever it is needful and profitable. The true way in this matter would be to keep the order of the gospel. In Matthew 18, Christ says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Here you have a precious and excellent teaching for governing well the tongue, which is to be kept carefully against this detestable misuse. Let this then be your rule, that you do not too quickly spread evil about your neighbor and slander him to others. Instead, admonish him privately that he may amend his life. Likewise, if someone reports to you that this or that person has done, teach him too to go on and admonish that person personally, if he has seen the deed himself. But if he has not seen it, let him hold his tongue." You can learn the same thing also from the daily government of the household. When the master of the house sees that his servant does not do what he ought, he admonishes him personally. But if he were so foolish as to let the servant sit at home and went on the streets to complain about him to his neighbors, he would no doubt be told, You fool, how does that concern us? Why don't you tell it to the servant? Look, that would be acting quite brotherly, so that evil would be stopped and your neighbor would retain his honor. As Christ also says in the same place, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Then you have done a great and excellent work, for do you think it is a small matter to gain a brother? Let all monks and holy orders step forth with all their works melted together into one mass and see if they can boast that they have gained a brother. Further, Christ teaches, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the person concerned in this matter must always be dealt with personally and must not be spoken of without his knowledge. But if that does not work, then bring it publicly before the community, whether before the civil or the church court. For then you will not stand alone, but you have those witnesses with you by whom you can convict the guilty one. Relying on their testimony, the judge can pronounce sentence and punishment. This is the right and regular course for checking and reforming a wicked person. But if we gossip about one another in all corners and stir the filth, no one will be reformed. Later, when we are to stand up and bear witness, we deny having said so. Therefore, it would serve such tongues right if their itch for slander were severely punished as a warning to others. If you are acting for your neighbor's reformation or from love of the truth, you would not sneak about secretly nor shun the day and the light. All this has been said about secret sins. But where the sin is quite public, so that the judge and everybody know about it, you can without any sin shun the offender and let him go his own way, because he has brought himself into disgrace. You may also publicly testify about him. For when a matter is public in the daylight, there can be no slandering or false judging or testifying. It is like when we now rebuke the Pope with his doctrine, which is publicly set forth in books and proclaimed in all the world. Where the sin is public, the rebuke must also be public, that everyone may learn to guard against it. Now we have the sum and general understanding of this commandment. Let no one do any harm to his neighbor with the tongue, whether friend or foe. Do not speak evil of him, no matter whether it is true or false, unless it is done by commandment or for his reformation. Let everyone use his tongue and make it serve for the best of everyone else, to cover up his neighbor's sins and infirmities excuse them, conceal, and garnish them with his own reputation. The chief reason for this should be the one that Christ declares in the gospel, where he includes all commandments about our neighbor. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Even nature teaches the same thing on our own bodies, as St. Paul says. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty no one covers his face eyes nose and mouth for they being in themselves the most honorable parts that we have do not require it but the most weak parts of which we are ashamed we cover with all diligence hands eyes and the whole body must help to cover and conceal them so also among ourselves we should clothe whatever blemishes and infirmities we find in our neighbor, and help him to promote his honor to the best of our ability. On the other hand, we should prevent whatever may be disgraceful to him. It is especially an excellent and noble virtue for someone always to explain things to his neighbor's advantage, and to put the best construction on all that he may hear about his neighbor, if it is not notoriously evil. Or, at any rate, Forgive the matter over and against the poisonous tongues that are busy wherever they can to pry out and discover something to blame in a neighbor. They explain and pervert the matter in the worst way, as is done now especially with God's precious word and preachers. There are included, therefore, in this commandment quite a multitude of good works. These please God most highly and bring abundant and good blessing, if only the blind world and the false saints would recognize them. For there is nothing on or in a person that can do both greater and more extensive good or harm in spiritual and temporal matters than the tongue. This is true, even though it is the least and weakest part of a person. The Sixth Commandment You shall not commit adultery. The following commandments are easily understood from the explanation of the preceding commandments. For they are all to show us that we must avoid doing any kind of harm to our neighbor. But they are arranged in a fine order. In the first place, they talk about our neighbor personally. Then they proceed to talk about the person nearest him, or the closest possession next after his body, namely his wife. She is of one flesh and blood with him, so that we cannot inflict a higher injury upon him in any good than this. Therefore, It is clearly forbidden here to bring any disgrace upon our neighbor regarding his wife. The commandment really takes aim at adultery, because among the Jewish people it was ordained and commanded that everyone must be married. The young were engaged to be married early, and the virgin state was held in small esteem. Yet neither were public prostitution and lewdness tolerated, as now. Therefore adultery was the most common form of unchastity among them, but among us there is such a shamefulness and the very dregs of all vice and lewdness. Therefore, this commandment is directed against all kinds of unchastity, whatever it may be called. Not only is the outward act of adultery forbidden, but also every kind of cause, motive, and means of adultery. Then the heart, the lips, and the whole body may be chaste and offer no opportunity, help, or persuasion toward inchastity. Not only this, but we must also resist temptation offer protection, and rescue honor wherever there is danger and need. We must give help and counsel so as to maintain our neighbor's honor. For wherever you abandon this effort when you could resist unchastity, or whenever you overlook it as if it did not concern you, you are as truly guilty of adultery as the one doing the deed. To speak in the briefest way, this much is required of you. Every Everyone must live chastely himself and help his neighbor do the same. So by this commandment, God wishes to build a hedge round about and protect every spouse so that no one trespasses against him or her. But this commandment is aimed directly at the state of marriage and gives us an opportunity to speak about it. First, understand and mark well how gloriously God honors and praises this estate. For by his commandment, he both approves and guards it, He has approved it in the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. But here he has, as we said, hedged it about and protected it. Therefore he also wishes us to honor it and maintain and govern it as a divine and blessed estate. Because in the first place he has instituted it before all others. He created man and woman separately, as is clear. This was not for lewdness, but so that they might live together in marriage, be fruitful, bear children, nourish and train them to honor God. Therefore God has also most richly blessed this estate above all others. In addition, he has bestowed on it and wrapped up in it everything in the world, so that this estate might be well and richly provided for. Married life is therefore no joke or presumption. It is an excellent thing and a matter of divine seriousness. For marriage has the highest importance to God, so that people are raised up who may serve the world and promote the knowledge of God, godly living, and all virtues, to fight against wickedness and the devil. I have always taught that this estate should not be despised, nor held in disrepute, as is done by the blind world and our false church leaders. Marriage should be regarded as it is in God's Word, where it is adorned and sanctified. It is not only placed on an equality with other estates, but it comes first and surpasses them all, emperor, princes, bishops, or whatever they please. For both church and civil estates must humble themselves and be found in this estate, as we shall hear. Therefore it is not a peculiar estate, but the most common and noblest estate that runs through all Christendom. Yes, it extends through all the world." In the second place, you must know also that marriage is not only an honorable, but also a necessary estate. In general, and in all conditions, it is solemnly commanded by God that men and women who were created for marriage shall be found in this estate. Yet there are some exceptions, although few, whom God has especially set apart. They are not fit for the married estate, or they are individuals whom he has released by a high supernatural gift so that they can maintain chastity without this estate. For where nature has its course, since it is given by God, it is not possible to remain chaste without marriage. For flesh and blood remain flesh and blood. The natural desire and excitement have their course without delay or hindrance, as everybody sees and feels. In order, therefore, that it may be easier in some degree to avoid unchastity, God has commanded the estate of marriage. In this way, every one may have his proper portion and be satisfied with it, yet God's grace is also required in order that the heart may be pure. From this you see how this popish rabble, priests, monks, and nuns, resist God's order and commandment, for they desire and forbid matrimony, and they dare and vow to maintain perpetual chastity. Besides this, they deceive the simple minded with lying words and appearances for no one has so little love and desire for chastity as these very people. Because of such great sanctity, they avoid marriage and either indulge in open and shameless prostitution, or secretly do even worse, so that one dare not speak of it. Unfortunately, this has been learned too fully. In short, even though they abstain from the act, their hearts are so full of unchaste thoughts and evil lusts that there is a continual burning and secret suffering which can be avoided in the married life. Therefore, all vows of chastity outside of the married estate are condemned by this commandment. Free permission to marry is granted. Indeed, even the command is given to all poor and snared consciences that have been deceived by their monastic vows, abandon the unchaste state and enter the married life. They must consider that even if the monastic life were godly, it would still not be in their power to maintain chastity and if they remain in their monastic vows, they must not only sin more and more against this commandment. Now I speak of this in order that the young may be guided so that they desire the married estate, and know that it is a blessed estate and pleases God. For in this way, over time, we might cause married life to be restored to honor. There might be less of the filthy, loose, disorderly ends that now run riot the world over in open prostitution and other shameful vices arising from disregard for married life. Therefore, it is the duty of parents and the government to see to it that our youth are brought up with discipline and respectability. When they have become mature, parents and governments should provide for them to marry in the fear of God and honorably. God would not fail to add his blessing and grace so that people would have joy and happiness from marriage. Let me now say in conclusion what this commandment demands. Everyone should live chaste in thought, word, and deed in his condition, that is, especially in the estate of marriage. But also everyone should love and value the spouse God gave to him. For where marital chastity is to be maintained, man and wife must by all means live together in love and harmony. Then one may cherish the other from the heart, and with complete faithfulness. For harmony is one of the principal points that enkindles love and desire for chastity, so that where this is found, chastity will follow without any command. Therefore, St. Paul diligently encourages husband and wife to love and honor one another. Here you have again precious, indeed many, and great good works. You can joyfully boast about them, against all churchly estates chosen without God's word and commandment. Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.